It's good to be here together. Um, those of you that are outside and online, um, I'm glad we're here together. And I have a question for you. It's a would you rather question, okay? Would you rather walk through hard things and see miracles, or would you rather see no miracles at all? Well, walking through hard things is not a requirement for a miracle. But taking a step of faith is. Saying yes to God is. You know, each time Jesus offered life change, he asked the person to take a step of faith. He said, pick up your mat, get up, go. Every miracle Jesus carries out reveals his authority, his power, his deity. It reveals that he is the son of God. But not every miracle he performed was asked by the one who received it. See, we don't determine when God is going to accomplish a miracle. And the miracles God is willing to do we rarely ask for. There are several miracles in Scripture that no one asked for, and we're going to look at one of those today. So go ahead and open your Bibles to John 6, verse 1, and it will also be on the screens. After this, Jesus crossed to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd followed him because they saw the signs he was performing on the sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain and sat down with his disciples. Now the Jewish feast of the Passover was near. And so when it is Passover, it's like spring break, okay? You go to Palm Springs or Florida, there are crowds everywhere, When Jesus looked up and saw a crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where can we buy bread for these people to eat? But he was asking this to test him, for he knew what he was about to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. This is the miracle of feeding the 5,000, and many of you are familiar with it. 
It is recorded in all four Gospels. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us a few more details about how this day started. They said Jesus was simply trying to get away, to get alone with his disciples. They needed some rest. It had been a long week of ministry and serving, and he also had some more things he wanted to teach them. And yet, people were traveling. The crowds were coming. They had heard about Jesus, but they had not seen him. They had heard that he had done miracles, that he had healed people, and they were curious. They wanted to know more. And so when Jesus sees them, he welcomes them, and he invites them to come and to listen to all that he's teaching his disciples. And he even healed some. And then it was getting late, and everyone was hungry. So Jesus, out of his compassion for those around him, comes up with a plan to have an impromptu party to feed 5,000 people. And actually, the numbers are more. Because when you add in the women and the children, you're getting to about 15,000 or 20,000. And up until this point, there's never been a miracle that has impacted so many and so many people of diversity See, we have the Galilean Jewish people coming. We have the people from the surrounding areas. And there were even non-believers because this is an area near the place where the pagan worship was going on. And yet, Jesus feeds them all. And yet, no one asked for this miracle. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that this miracle overflowed from a heart of compassion But John has a different perspective. When we read in verse 5 and 6, when Jesus saw the crowds coming, Jesus said to Philip, where will we get this bread? And he tells us that Jesus knew what he was going to do. He didn't need a solution, but he did this to test Philip. Well, we know that tests reveal what we already know, and they reveal what we still need to learn. And some of you are in professions that in order to get that job, you had to pass some tests. And you know what? Your students, your clients, and your patients are glad that you did. And in the book of James, we learn that God does not tempt us to sin, And he does not test us to fail. He tests us to build us up, to refine us, to fortify us, to strengthen us. And yet, testing is not easy. It's hard. But our culture worships easy. So we avoid hard. But hard is not bad. Hard can produce good. You know, we don't usually become better people when life is easy. We become better people when life is hard. See, God will test us because he's for us. He has a heart to call us out and call us up, but not to shame us. And so that's what he's doing here for Philip and for the disciples. Jesus is preparing Philip for more, for what's next, Jesus isn't calling Philip out. 
He's calling Philip up. This is Philip's moment in his faith journey, his moment to step out and say yes. We know that Philip is close to Jesus. He's one of the disciples. And a distinctive of a disciple is that they have said yes to Jesus, to following him, to be intent on learning his ways. They're not perfect. They're all in process. We all are in process learning to align our hearts with Jesus' heart. So Philip um, has been with Jesus for a while, um, probably 18 months, two years about this time. So he's seen Jesus perform some miracles. The very first one, water into wine. He's seen him heal people that are sick and injured. He's seen them um, cast out the demons. He's seen them calm the storms. And so many would say that Philip failed the faith test. That Philip should have said, Oh, God, I've seen you do everything before. You have all authority, all power, and so just tell me what to do, and I'll do it. If Philip has failed, I have failed too. But the good news is, failure is not final, and failure is often the better teacher than success. See, John's perspective about this miracle is that it is an opportunity to strengthen the disciples' faith. And as we look at this miracle through the eyes of the disciples, maybe our faith will be strengthened too. So this is what we know. When Jesus says to Philip, where can we get the bread for these people? It's been a long day. It's been a long week. They're tired and they're hungry. When we are hungry and tired, we are not usually ready for a let's do more attitude. (laughs) And so Philip looks at this situation and determines we are in a remote spot, and there's really no place to go. And there's a lot of people here. We can barely move. And is it even financially responsible to feed this crowd? It would take more than six months' wages just to give them a snack, just to give them an appetizer. See, Philip doesn't really say no, but he doesn't say yes either because Philip doesn't know how yes will work. We wonder why Jesus would ask Philip to do something he's unable to do. Philip assessed the situation accurately. There were obstacles And we wonder why God asks us sometimes to do things that we can't do or that are beyond us. Jesus already knew what he was going to do. He didn't need a solution from Philip. But he asked that question in hopes that Philip would ask himself a different question. See, there's a question behind this question. Philip, where are you looking See, where we look matters. Just one second looking at your phone while driving, you can end up in the rear end of the car in front of you. And just one second taking your eyes off a toddler, and they are gone. 
For such tiny people, they're great escape artists. <laughs> and just one extra second on the computer in the wrong site can get you sucked into things that will lead into devastation and heartache. And just one second looking in the wrong direction while on a bicycle, you can crash. I know this. <laughs> Some of you know that I like to ride bikes. But you may not know that I own three bikes. <laughs> I know, that sounds indulgent, right? But each of those bikes takes me to a different destination. But you can be sure that when I'm on each of those bikes, I am paying attention to where I'm looking. So when I'm out on my road bike, I'm looking at all the drivers around me to make sure they can see me. Because I want to live to ride again. And then my husband and I love to travel via our bikes. So we have touring bikes. And when we travel, sometimes for a few days, sometimes for weeks, maybe a month or so, um, we ride at a different pace. So we keep our eyes on each other so we can stay together pretty much. I mean, usually, you know, we can see each other before the next turn. But, um, and that's really important in foreign countries. But that's a story for another day. Um, and then on my mountain bike, I think we are going to have a picture up here. Now, that is not me. And I never ride the trails on this left side. But I will tell you that every time I'm on a downhill, I think I'm on the trail on the left side. <laughs> Because the key to riding your mountain bike is there are so many obstacles and you have to find a way through them. And the trick is, where you look is where you're going. So if you look at the boulder, you will hit it every time. But if you look beyond the boulder, you can make your way through. And this is true of our faith journeys. Where we look is where we are going. And so we need to look beyond the obstacles to the one who sees the destination. Looking beyond is not ignoring. It is not denying that they exist, but, they, but we are acknowledging them, and we are addressing them, and we are finding the way through. And there can be many obstacles in our faith journey. And so this morning, I just want to look at a few of them. And the first one is the obstacle of unbelief. We believe, don't we? We believe. We want to believe, and yet life has a way of challenging our belief. Michael Novak was a Catholic philosopher, and he explained it this way, that there are three levels of belief. It's our public belief, what we say when we're around others, what we want others to think we believe, and then our private belief, what we believe when we're alone, what we think we believe. And then we have our core belief. And it's what we believe, whether we know it or not. And that core belief is challenged when what we desire most is at risk. So when what you desire is most at risk, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? Are you wanting to control? Are you wanting to fear? Are you worrying? 
Are you irritable? Are you withdrawing? Biblical belief is more than what we feel or intellectually agree with. Biblical belief is what we entrust our hearts and minds to. It's what we place our confidence in. I know when the obstacle of unbelief is rising in me, there's these faith indicators going off. And what I mean by that is they're very similar to the lights you see in the dashboard of your car when they're trying to warn you. Excuse me. So you... Okay, so you have um, these lights in your dashboard that tell you when you're out of gas or when you need to take your car to the mechanic. Do you know that we have those in us, these thoughts, these feelings, these behaviors, that when our core belief is challenging, is being challenged, we kind of just automatically go there because we try to find safety and security in them. And so they can be that worry, that anger, that yelling, that inner irritability, discouragement, withdrawal, or any habits that you seek to provide comfort or escape. Many of you have heard I'm in a time of transition, and I would like to be with certainty what my next step is, but I really don't. And so my faith indicators have kind of been humming along. And for me, that can be my inner critic. And that can be, I want to control something. And it can also be, I get a little discouraged. And so as I'm walking through this time, I'm reminding myself, as I fall into these thoughts and behaviors, that what I care about is being challenged. And that I need to ask myself, where am I looking? What am I entrusting my life to? So whenever I think about this word belief, I'm replacing it with entrust because it's telling me that it's more than what I think and feel. It's what I'm putting my confidence in. And so in addition um, to that, that's how I've been navigating it. Um, But this obstacle of unbelief, we need to look beyond our desires to the one who knows our hearts. And then at times, we will face the obstacle of expectation. See, our faith can get obscured when our expectations and our plans don't come through. It's okay to be disappointed when our expectations aren't met, but we need to find a way through. We often go through this process of blaming or withdrawing or rejecting people and even God. And yet, that will leave us stuck. So we have to find a way through. And the best way through that is what is true. What does God tell us about himself in the Bible so that we do not become confused by who we expect God to be or by what we expect him to do? So when our expectations are not met, is he no longer God? Is he no longer trustworthy? When my life isn't good, is he no longer good? Those are hard places to be. And God's word tells us the truth about these life challenges. You're going to have hard things. 
but I'm bigger than those hard things. And mostly, I'm with you in those hard things. And you're not always going to understand them, and they aren't easy. So you need to get your community. You need to find out what is true. We need to navigate these things together. We need to ask ourselves, did God break his promises, or did he act contrary to his character? Because I want to tell you that God promises us that he will answer every prayer. He answers every prayer with his presence. He's not abandoning you nor forsaking you, but he can feel like that. He's answering every prayer with the desire to give you his peace, to give you that peace that goes beyond what you're going through. I've struggled with that. I've, I've cried out. I've screamed. I've swept through the night when peace has evaded me in my circumstances. But God has been there for me, and he wants to be there for all of us. And then he promises to answer our prayers with the strength to endure And do you know where he is right now? Right now, Jesus is at the throne, the right side of God, and he's praying for you. He's advocating. He's interceding. He wants to give you his peace and his presence and his strength. So we need to continue to look at truth to the one who loves us and is for us. And then the obstacle of limitations. Philip did what we do. We look at ourselves, and we're not enough. We look at our resources, and they are not enough. We look at our situation, and we are stuck. But we respond from the desire to be self-sufficient. We want to be enough on our own. And yet that's not how it works in the kingdom, does it? We can't be enough. We need Jesus' sacrifice. And not only that, we respond from this idea of scarcity when God wants to give us abundance. John 10.10 tells us, I came to give them life abundant. But in the kingdom, abundance is more than good circumstances and good things. His abundance is love. His abundance is grace It's goodness, it's mercy, it's generosity, it's compassion, it's redemption, it's forgiveness. And he wants to give us everything we need to live a godly life in abundance. So to navigate this obstacle of limitations, we need to surrender to the one who offers abundance. We need to look beyond the obstacles and look to the one who strengthens us. We get to look up. So Jesus knows what he's doing, and he had a plan, and he told the disciples, go have them sit down. Well, that's a lot of people, so they spread out into the crowds, and they organized them. And when Jesus said to them, go have them sit down, he's saying, get them ready for what's about to happen. And so it's more than just sit. It's like get them ready. And so as the crowds were invited to sit, what they heard in the Greek was to lie back, to recline, to be ready for restoration and refreshment. See, that was their mealtime. That was the habit of when they sat down for mealtime. 
they were having a time for intimacy, community, and significant conversation. Mealtime was to affirm their friendship and goodwill toward each other. We need a lot more of that, don't we? We need a lot more mealtimes together. This mealtime was sacred, and Jesus had this plan to affirm his love and his care for them and to feed them with abundance. And so as we consider the disciples' perspective, we see a shift in their actions. By now they're thinking, I didn't need to come up with a plan. I just needed to follow Jesus' plan. And I am starting to anticipate what he's going to do. I want to keep my eyes on him and see where he is going. And as the disciples watch this movement of sitting, they're also reminded of what it means to have a sacred meal with God themselves, to prepare themselves for, for what God wants to do in them, for them to be able to say yes to what God has for next. So sitting is simply the invitation of looking up. See, our perspectives will change as well when we sit. In our hearts, when our posture is sitting, we will receive what God has, his abundance. See, he invites us to a sacred meal to stop worrying, to stop striving, to rest, to enjoy him, to get to know him, and to be known by him, to he to have deep and honest conversation with him. I love the Psalms because they're raw, they're real. The psalmist will tell God exactly what's going on, and they will sit there, and they know God can take it. God already knows what they're going to say, but it's for us to say it to him, to get it out on the table, to present it before him. And so I want to encourage you this week to read Psalm 77. It's this beautiful picture of how David pours out his heart. Let me just read a couple verses for you. I cried out to God for help. I cried out for God to hear me. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? See, sacred meals, we get to be honest. And then we get a time to remember, to look back and see what he's already done for us. We have to look in that direction because that gives us more faith to believe what's ahead, that he will be for us because he doesn't change. So if he was with us and for us before, he's going to be that way again. And then sacred mealtime is also the time we get to ask questions. We get to ask God. And I want to encourage you to ask two questions sometime this week. God, what do you want me to know? What do you want me to know about you? What do you want me to know about my circumstances? And then sit. Just sit with that. And then ask him, what do you want me to do with what you just told me? See, he may say okay, it's time to go apply for that new job. He may say, it's time to go and apologize. He may say, I just want you to wait. I just want you to sit with me. I just want you to watch what I'm going to do. And as sacred meals in the Jewish tradition are a time of intimacy, it's so important that we listen, 
that we listen to the heart of the Father, that we listen until his voice is louder than the obstacles we're facing, that his voice um, is grand, but yet his voice is gentle, and his voice will see us through. Isaiah 55, 2 says, Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Sacred meals can bring the greatest miracle you will ever know, a heart that is changed regardless of your circumstances changing. So we get to look up and we get to see what God will do in us. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. Um, But after the crowd sat, Matthew and Mark and Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus said, you give them food. You take the food to them. See, Jesus was inviting them to join him in the work he was about to do. And see, their circumstances hadn't changed There was a lot of people still there. They were still hungry. They were still tired. But the disciples went. They went from a place of wanting to send everyone away to feeding the crowds and then collecting the baskets of leftovers, 12 baskets. See, looking beyond and looking up, the disciples were strengthened. Their faith increased And they were able to look out, to look out with compassion and generosity. And the crowds ate as much as they wanted. And what the disciples experienced is available to us as well. There will always be enough in the kingdom. And Jesus told the disciples, greater things you will do in my name. Hope City Church Great things are happening and will continue to happen in God's name. I've been amazed over the last six months how much we have been able to do. Building community here, reaching out to the community through foster parent support, and then the trunk or treat event, and then around the world with our For the City Um, gifts, missionary um, giving, and then even Operation Christmas Child. We get there one yes at a time, one step at a time, with faithfulness, love, and hope. See, we receive his abundance so we can give it away. We are not the landing pad. We are the launching pad. He simply asks us to give what we have and then watch what he will do. If we keep it, we can only do a little. If we give it to him, he can do a lot. We surrender it to Jesus and we let him do the math. Chris mentioned that two Sundays from now, we're going to do church a little different on April 30th. We have this opportunity in his steps to go into the community with love and generosity. And I want to encourage you to look online because there are a lot of projects. And no matter who you are, there is something for you. Whether it's writing a note, whether it's praying, whether it's doing gardening or putting together some um, furniture for the boys' home down the street, whatever, there is something there for you. So I hope 
that you will sign up. But most importantly, will you pray? Will you pray that God multiplies our efforts for his name, for his kingdom? I know that the things that I've shared for you, with you, the obstacles of unbelief, um, expectation, and limitations can be difficult. I'm not minimizing that. Um, but I want to ask you, what is your greatest need right now? Where are you praying for a miracle? Where are you looking? You and I rarely ask for the miracle God is always willing to do, which is to change our hearts like his so that we can live out of the abundance that he has for us. So will you pray that God will do that work? We are changed when we say yes. Christine Kane states it this way, God is not always asking big things of us. We are most often called to simply say yes to the next thing, to the next thing he's asked us to do. Even seemingly mundane moments are opportunities for a miracle. We never know when our simple yes will become a miracle. So let's take the next few minutes and worship and ask God where he wants us to look.